Put in your earbuds, pour a cup of tea, or put on your work gloves. It's time for another episode of the No-Till Flowers podcast. As always, I'm your ever-curious host, Jenny Love. Season 3 of the No-Till Flowers Podcast. I am so delighted to be back behind the microphone, chatting with guests that have so much knowledge and inspiration to share with all of us. There is going to be an underlying theme to this season. I've chosen guests who can speak, in part, to strategies for making our small diversified farms more resilient in the face of climate change. I've been flower farming for 14 seasons now, and each season is becoming increasingly more challenging with extreme weather events. Rather than pretend it's not happening, I'd like to walk right up to this problem and really think about solutions together. That's not to say that every episode here in season three will just be farmers bitching about the weather. (laughs) As always, there's going to be a tremendous depth and breadth to what's on offer. And you'll see that really come through in my conversation with today's guest, Emma Horswell. Emma runs Earthenry Farm in Tasmania, Australia, just outside of Hobart. Back in August of this past growing season, 2022, Emma reached out to me after reading on an Instagram post about the challenge I was having with watering my farm during the scorching drought we were experiencing here in Philadelphia. I had been lamenting in that post about how my well was running dry, and I was fed up with drip irrigation. It just didn't seem to be effective. I had switched over to overhead um, watering with like a sprinkler because I felt that I could get water to more parts of my field that way, rather than relying on the drip tape system I had had in place for a long time. Emma kindly pointed me in a whole new direction that has quite literally (laughs) blown my horticulturalist mind. It's something called pulse watering. In my horticultural training years ago, it was drilled into me that you should water deeply, less frequently, to encourage roots to go deeper in search of the water, which, in theory, (laughs) makes the plants more resilient to drought and better rooted in general. So for years, I've been watering my beds for about two hours at a time, once or twice a week. And yet, my soil always felt dry, even right after I turned the irrigation off. I kept adding more and more drip tape to the beds, with tighter and tighter spacing for the emitters, hoping I could finally feel like I was getting sufficient moisture to my plant roots. Five lines across a 36-inch bed and eight-inch emitters on each line still wasn't enough. Oh yeah, and my well was running dry. Pulse watering turns that old horticulture advice on its head. Rather than watering deeply, infrequently, pulse watering has you watering in short little spurts multiple times a day, every day. So for instance, maybe six times a day for five minute spurts every day of the week. It seemed ridiculous at first that turning on my drip tape for five minutes at a time would even remotely be effective. But Emma seemed like a pretty reasonable and intelligent person, and I was pretty desperate, so I decided to experiment with this new approach. You'll hear the remarkable results in this episode. 
Irrigation is not the only subject we talked about in this episode. We hit on cover cropping, fertilizing through both fertigation and soil amendments, bringing new ground into production, laying out your farm in, a, in an aesthetically pleasing way, nurturing microbes in the soil, and fostering a more and diverse, healthy ecosystem at your farm. This is a longer chat, but it is absolutely packed full of gems. I truly cannot wait for you to hear it. Emma has been kind enough to offer to put together a fact sheet on pulse watering for listeners to use so that they can implement it on their farms too. I'll include a link in the show notes here, and it will also be available uh, perpetually over on the Regenerative Flower Farmers Network. Emma will be joining members of the Regenerative Flower Farmers Network for a live Q&A session sometime in the coming weeks. If you aren't already a member of the network, please make sure to join so you will get notified of the date and time for that Q&A. Additionally, there are lots of helpful links in the show notes to this episode, so be sure to click on those wherever you're listening to this podcast. Alrighty, let's get into this chat with Emma Horswell from Earthenry Farm. Today, I've got Emma Horswell from Earthenry Farm with me to talk about farming in Tasmania, so completely different location than Philadelphia. <laughs> like, I, I actually can't imagine a more different location. Maybe the Sahara Desert, that would be different. But, <laughs> um, but Emma comes with this breadth and depth of background knowledge and um, current work and a journey through flower farming, and there's just so much that I'm excited to pick your brain about, Emma, so thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast today. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for, for asking me. Yeah, of course. I want you to tell us about your journey into flower farming, what your background is, and a little bit more about Earthenry Farm, where you're located. You know, it's like you know, quick and dirty mm-hmm. interview here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, so we're, um, we're just sort of 25 minutes south of Hobart, which is the capital of Tasmania. Um, and we, yeah, we're kind of coastal. Um, so we're about five minutes um, drive from the coast. Um, but yeah, still lovely and green, not your typical sort of dry coastal sort of area. We're a very kind of cool, temperate climate, so short season, um, but not as extreme as a lot of the um, weather in America. So we're kind of, we might get a snow on the ground once every seven years. Um, and, you know, but some good hearty kind of frosts and things like that through winter. And then we have this kind of short and can be quite hot, but um, relative to the rest of Australia, it's quite cool. So we can get up to sort of, um, oh, I don't know what it is in Fahrenheit, but 30, okay. <laughs> 30 to 35 degree kind of heats in, um, in um, yeah, in Tassie here as well through the summer. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's relatively mild, but it's... Um, it has its challenges, um, you know, still with, with the, the, the hard frosts and the, and the hot high temps as well. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. There's yeah. no place in the world that farming isn't challenging for the record. No, that's, that's totally true. <laughs> and getting more so. Right. <laughs> challenging. <laughs> Part of our conversation today. Yeah. 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 But how did you so, get into flower farming? Where did you start? Yeah, it, I was, um, 
I, it was basically kind of like a journey from gardening mm. very much so. Mm. So I was, um, I come from a family of gardeners. Um, and my grandparents were avid gardeners and, and had a big block of land and were outside every day. And, and I kind of developed a love of landscape to do, design first and we're, we're following um, and sort of looking at how um, to build a landscape as soon as we bought our farm, which we've been on for 20 years now. But I wasn't thinking about flower farming. I used to be kind of like we wanted land because I was a competitive horse rider and um, sort of <laughs> putting in arenas and, <laughs> you know, trotting around with ponies early in the morning, sort of thing, <laughs> which actually gave me a very good work ethic to be a flower farmer because, <laughs> right. you know, you're still getting up early and you're outside <laughs> and you're working hard. So, yeah. yeah. And then I had this crazy idea to convert one of our paddocks. We we had some um, some pigs that were turning over some of the reeds and the water kind of reeds that had taken over the pasture. So we brought in some pigs to raise some pigs and and they did this brilliant job of um, turning it over to um, sort of um, basically bare soil. And um, we decided that we wanted to put in a big natural swimming pond and this. Um, so we got in and uh, and and built that and then all of the beautiful topsoil that came from that location I used to mound up large garden beds so it was a it was a big landscape design project that I'd been kind of wanting to do for a long time and and loved it. So is that where the I hate to interrupt, but is that where the big moundy things came from? When you in your yeah. all your um, video, there's like lots of uh, large mounded yeah. areas. That's what that yeah. resulted from. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I call it the mound garden. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, it's and beautiful. It's kind of an <laughs> yeah, it is beautiful. Um, I was born in New Zealand, so I've kind of um, and we've we've visited Japan, and so mm-hmm. those are probably the three main sort of flora influences that I have. And I'm a big um, fan of Pete Alduf and his kind of work on mm-hmm. naturalistic plantings and things like that too. So I was kind of wanting to find a style and a planting that would be, um, that would thrive in my location, obviously, number one, but also um, the mounds kind of reference that lovely um, uh, Japanese sort of mm-hmm. um, habit of creating these kind of bit of height and a bit of drama and and the big rocks and things like that. Right. Um and, and and some garden rooms as well. So I actually think of my farm as a, a, a big landscaped property with lots of garden rooms that okay. I can farm in. Yeah, and then it and enables me to kind of create these kind of mixed borders of plantings and habitat and things mm-hmm. aside to my growing plots and my areas that really help support all the all the okay. beneficials. Yeah. And Mm. how do you come up with that layout? You know, like, and listeners, if you haven't already gone on to Earthenry's Instagram page, you really should because there's lots of beautiful inspiration there. And you have these what I, I would I would refer to as like production landscapes where it's both productive, but it's also beautifully mm. landscaped. And this is something so many listeners who are farming in an area that's more residential and it's not like you're out in, you know, 100 acres of land and you can do whatever you want. There's a 
lot of our listeners who are trying to both produce lots of cut flowers <laughs> and mm. be profitable, but also have to have a space that looks lovely enough for their neighbors to not call, you know, mm. the local authorities on them, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you balance yeah. that when you're designing, you know, the flow of things? Or do you have any mm. advice just in general? Your your farm has clearly found a good way of, of mixing both beautiful landscaping with productive areas. Mm. Yeah, because our farm is um, predominantly we're sort of wanting to focus on it being a pick-your-own sort of agribusiness, mm. so pick-your-own mm. flowers. So we're getting guests and the public to come to our farm. That's the whole point of of my, my driving force behind growing flowers. Um, and we do have other sort of revenue streams as well. But um, so that, that brings a whole other kind of functionality that is required, so safety and how people are moving mm. through the farm and how they traverse. But... I think just having that landscape, that design background, and um, and I I've done a fine arts degree as well, so I'm kind of really interested in the creative and the visual and the aesthetic of the farm and um, and the experience of people coming to the farm and and walking around it. So every decision I make is um, starts with the aesthetic of it, and then. Uh, and then I think about the functionality of maintaining that, you know, right down to how am I going to mow that corner? Yeah. You know, like yeah, exactly. I can't That's have what some I little corner. <laughs> when I look at your beautiful videos, I'm like, that is a lot of mowing. How do you mow yeah. all of that stuff? <laughs> With my favourite ever thing that I have, which is my amazing um, American branded Hustler ride-on mower, which is like a steel beast and it's just fantastic and I love it. Yeah. yeah. All right. I'm not familiar with that brand but I'm going to look it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the only one that has heavy-duty steel components rather than plastic. So we okay. just, we love it. Yeah, okay. you can really treat it rough and it's um, yeah. it still keeps going. So, yeah, yeah lots of mowing, um, uh, which I love. There's nothing better than sitting on the mower with a podcast in and no one talking to you. So it's my absolute favourite thing to do. <laughs> I can relate. But, yeah. I don't want difficult mowing, which is like whippersnippering and, um, you know, push mowing and tiny corners and things like that. So we, everything that we design, we think about how we're going to maintain it as well. And that's just so after, you know, after years of living on the same property, we know we want it to take the least amount of time, but we want it to be. Um, yeah, a functional, beautiful space as well. Yeah, that's super smart and something I think a lot of newer growers don't necessarily begin by thinking about how will I maintain this for years to come. They get focused on like, I want to plant, you know, nigella and larkspur and you don't think about like, well, what is the width of the aisle and what size mm. mower am I going to use or am I not mowing or, you know, all those questions are like equally yeah. important, in fact, if not more important than what you're growing. <laughs> Yeah, and don't get me wrong, I made all those mistakes when I was starting out as well. <laughs> so when did you sort of officially start selling flowers? What year was that for you? 2019. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And it's been it's been challenging because that first year was a quote unquote normal season. Um and I grew the most amazing flowers and I knew what how the how good they could be. And then we're now three um this is my fourth year growing flowers and we're three years into a La Nina. Mm. And yeah, it's been really challenging. And I and I thank goodness that I started in that year because um if I I, I know how good they can be. Yeah. So if I didn't I probably would have stopped and think 
think that I was no good at it and, yeah. and quit. But yeah, yeah. so <laughs> I'm holding out for that first year again. So to that end, really quick before we switch, because pulse watering is the primary focus today, because this is such an amazing tool to share with everybody um, when it comes to irrigation. But I just want to flesh out because I think it's good context. Your farm is nine acres, correct? About nine acres. Yeah. Yeah. And and you have. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, we're not growing on that full nine acres. We've got about I did the conversion for you, I think. We're about a hundred, uh, sorry, th- sorry, three thousand square feet that we're growing on, just under a hundred square meters um, okay. of actual growing space that we have okay. now. So, okay. yeah, but we do have that full, yeah. full nine acres. And that's when enjoy. you're saying about that um, calculation. Those are for the more um, condensed, productive areas that are in like nice ten meter rows and organized fashion. Yes, not, not yeah. the rest not the of broader the cutting garden. Right. And, yes, and yeah. the gardens. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Um, but to put it in context, then you you are still stretched out over quite a number of acres in terms of like all of that 300 square meter or 3000 square meters or whatever is actually mm-hmm. in from what I could see in the videos, like very stretched yeah. out. So my yes. question or the reason I'm asking this to put this in context is you have to irrigate those areas that are quite mm. complex, I would say. Your, your irrigation system cannot be nearly as straightforward as mine, I would guess. <laughs> And yet you've come up with this grand or not, um, not necessarily you, you have adopted um, a system that is really, really working very well. And so do you want to just dive in to mm-hmm. your irrigation yeah. in general? <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I saw your, um, your, your post on Instagram, and I responded to it, I, I just, I was literally just a year, year behind you, basically mm-hmm. a year into trying this system because I'd had all the same problems myself. So, yeah. and I think a lot of new growers do this. They start out and they think, okay, I'm just going to water each bed for one hour a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, pr- you know, any more than that, I'm using too much water and any less than that, it's not really getting wet. Um, and I was doing that and I was, we don't have access to town, a town water supply or anything like that. So we, we have tanks and we have a couple of, um, we have a big dam up in the, in our bush block that, um, gravity feeds down to our tanks. And, um, but I was just, um, ending up purchasing water, you know, the water truck was coming every two weeks mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, this is intense you know and I I think a lot of new growers don't really underestimate how much water they need to grow intensively flowers um uh so yeah I I I was like I I have I need to solve this problem otherwise I can't keep farming pretty much yeah um and at this stage putting a in a bore is a little bit too expensive for us it's it's you still pay for the exploratory work Mm. um you you know it might be 100 meters down so it it's a big challenge so I, um, I, I also grow dahlias and, and things and I was I bought a little book um, called by, by one of our premier sort of um, Australian dahlia breeders called um, Dahlias in Australia, The Winky Way by John Menzel. So, and I, I think you've got some winky dahlias even over in the US, yeah. haven't you? Yeah. I just love yeah. that title in general, <laughs> The Winky yeah. Way. The Winky Way. Yeah, yeah no, yeah. John's great. And he, you know, he's got this really comprehensive sort of guide, 126 pages of how he goes about growing in South Australia. And we've it's a similar sort of um, sandy kind of soil like that we're dealing mm-hmm. with here in southern Tasmania as well over in um, 
in South Australia. So he he had to solve this problem as well. So I think, you know, if you're a farmer and you're lucky enough to have a bit of clay content in your soil, you, uh, you know, you don't have to think about this stuff as much as people who are growing on sand. <laughs> yeah, or silt. So, I mean, I don't have true sand, yeah. but I have a, a very silty, like heavily silty loam that has a tiny right. bit of clay in it, but it just drains. It might as well be sand, honestly. It just right. drains so fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I think if you grow on sand, I think it makes you a better farmer because mm. you really have to think about the soil. You really have to think about water and how it moves through the soil. Mm. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I um, we've got a lot of fantastic, beautiful uh, red kind of clay soil up in the north of Tasmania, which is the main farming belt. And yeah, it, I'm just constantly jealous about where they're growing <laughs> up there. But, but this makes me a good farmer. Right. So I'm yeah. learning so much. Yeah. But anyway, back to John, he um, came up, um, he, he um, wrote about this system called pulse watering and it really piqued my sort of interest because he makes this claim that you can save up to 80% um, of your water usage and, and still have beautiful moisture retentive kind of um, beds. Uh, and so... Um, yeah, I thought I'll give it a go, and I did. Um, and I, I, because I, I run the drip line like I think you do as well. Yeah. Like I think it's called T tape over yeah. there, and we could just call it drip line. My spacing is kind of twenty centimeters apart because it's sandy, so I wanted one with a little bit closer mm -hmm. um, than the standard sort of thirty. Uh, and yeah, basically, I I was finding that I felt like when I was watering an hour a day, I had to add more lines to the bed mm -hmm. to kind of really, really get it going. But this system claimed to um, do, instead of watering for one hour a day, you water six times a day for five minutes each time, which equals half an hour a day. I was like, that's half the amount of time. How is this going to work? How does this work? I agree. I was equally skeptical when you told me yep. about it. I was like, I don't know, Emma, you're probably a newer grower. You don't really know what you're talking about. Well, that is true. But in this particular yeah. case, I tried it and it worked. And, yeah. I, and, and I can remember, you know, even the first couple of weeks, you know, I had a bare bed just, um, mm -hmm. just by happen chance that didn't have any covers on it. So I just had the irrigation. And I set it up and I, I, I literally went out the next morning to have a look at it. And there was these tiny little circles around each dripper, like, I don't know, like a 50 cent piece coin or something just sitting there. I was like, this is rubbish. It's not going to work. <laughs> but I just, I don't know. I just, I was angry and I was like, oh, John, what are you talking about? You yeah, know, yeah. but I, I went away and I, I just persisted with it for a good couple mm -hmm. of weeks. And mm -hmm. within two weeks, it did take a bit of time to just, um, saturate that soil yeah. and travel in that lateral way yeah. across the soil. And, um, and then from then, you know, from that point, it just was this beautiful, moist, perfect moisture soil for the rest of the season and everything grew so well. Yeah. And I was using half the amount of water, yeah. which is incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. And, and John says, you know, like, he says 80% savings. And I think that's because you can then reduce the amount of drip lines that you have. So if mm -hmm. you're starting with four, you could go to two, or you might even be able to go to one, you know, if you're doing dahlias and you've got a planting on e either side. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I have done that in my new growing areas. I used to have three or four and I'm now two on every single nice. bed. So that's a further reduction. Yeah. Yeah. And saving water. Yeah. 
Definitely. I um I'm just going to I'm just going to reiterate and push home all of that how incredibly uh yeah, it's effective. It's just so effective is the mm. I think the word mm. I want to put on this where just like you Emma, I've for years, I mean for uh let's see, uh, 13 growing seasons, I did what I think most people do with drip irrigation, which is I would, I was taught, I'm a trained horticulturalist, we were taught to do deep waterings, you know, deep waterings mm-hmm. encourage deep roots. And that has just been drilled into me um, over the years. And so I would try to water for two hour push, you know, like two hour segments overnight um, on my beds. Uh, that was the way I used to do it. And I would do that like once a week was the goal to get every bed a two hour watering window overnight. Mm. And because of my soil drains so well, I on a meter wide bed, I have five drip lines, you know, to try to get enough water for that bed to feel moist the next day. And then I was just, as we get drier and hotter and drier and hotter here, I was just running out of water. I have a very weak well and there's just, I'm not on city water either, even though I'm in a city, which is ironic. But yeah, yeah, so I, this past season, it was um, really hard and I was running my well dry and that's where the whole conversation got started. And then when you told me about pulse watering and were kind enough to send me all the information on it, I switched my one of my hoop houses to pulse watering because I felt like that was a more like I wanted to just experiment and and test it out. <laughs> and so I yeah, I put it on for like a week on a timer with the pulses set. Um, very easy once you have a timer. In case anybody's yeah. like, how do you do all of this? You get a timer. <laughs> we'll I have talk to about have that. a timer. <laughs> Cannot do it without right. a timer. <laughs> so it was easy enough to set up one of my tunnels on, on, on a timer to do that. And for the first week, I was really skeptical, just like you. But then after, like by the second week, I was like, the soil in here just starting to be you know really nice it's really lovely mm-hmm. and i noticed an immediate response and growth it was amazing yeah. the plants that had been really struggling suddenly got very green um i had thought there was a lot of uh, nutrient deficiencies um in the soil like i was like oh there's apparently maybe some iron deficiency or something's happening the micronutrient mm-hmm. that i'm and i'm not seeing on the tests but the plants seem to be struggling because of it uh, and they mm. snapped out of that as soon as they started getting like even consistent moisture, like all of the problems I was having in there <laughs> disappeared. And then I, I got to the point actually where I had to stop using certain lines of the of the tea tape of the drip tape because it got yeah. swampy in there. Like yeah. I, I was yeah. shocked. I was using so much less water. And it was like sopping wet. <laughs> yeah, it's revolutionary. I had exactly the same, exactly the same yeah. thing. And I was yeah. like, oh, maybe I can. I don't need to do it six times a day. Maybe I can knock it back to five or yeah. four. And and that's what this season is going to be about for me. Yeah. Like really seeing how little water can I put right. on to maintain that beautiful moisture level. Yeah. yeah. It's phenomenal. It, mm. it 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 really blew my mind because I I love to break rules and so it was like this is breaking this rule of like deep watering and it's kind of mind blowing mm. and it makes you wonder what else are we doing 
that we just assume oh. is right. And as climate change in particular happens, and we need to come up with, you know, resiliency strategies, we need to question all rules. Like this, yes. th it's time to break every rule, try every experiment and talk about it, what works and what doesn't work um, and share that knowledge. Uh, so... I totally agree. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I just, I, I um, when I knew I was talking to you about this, I, I ra actually rang and Menzel and had a chat with her because nice. I wanted to know where they accessed this information from. And yeah, she was, she was great to talk, talk with. And she, um, I asked her if, you know, if, if there's any interest in ordering the book and she's, she's absolutely happy to, to um, post internationally if anyone's Ooh, yes. interested in getting, getting the manual so I can yes. provide you with the details. Oh, perfect. The, we'll put that the in show the notes. show notes. Yeah, definitely. I would yeah, love, yeah. I personally want a copy. I can't I'll be first in line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, and yeah, so she, um, they were they lived in an area which was a big fruit growing industry and it had um, open channel kind of irrigation. And what happened was that every farm was kind of allocated a time to irrigate mm. once a like a week mm -hmm. or something. So you could irrigate for X amount of hours once a week only. Wow. And um, and then also being on sandy soil, what they noticed was that um, you know that it didn't do as well, especially the citrus and the almonds needed extra water, she said. So um, they, yeah, they basically um, converted the the um, equations for, you know, if a citrus and an almond tree's root system is three feet down, they just noticed that if they did intermittent watering and they, and they changed it to be like a flower's roots is maybe six inches down, they just converted it to the, to the pulse system mm. that way. So yeah, she, she was saying that I, I don't know at what stage it changed from the open channel irrigation to, to everyone being able to install and do their own irrigation system, but that's what they noticed. There was a big shift between, and and all the farmers in the area were kind of talking about it. And, and I think John used to work as a bit of a rep um, for a fruit company and he would go between farms and visit them and really chat to them about yeah. how they're, how they're growing. So yeah, he just converted it from trees to flowers um, and that's where it came from. Wow. Yeah. What a what and a it gift. really it really works. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. And if it can work, you know, dahlias are one of the most water hungry crops. So you know that if you yeah. can make it work really well for dahlias in a hot, dry, sandy area, then it's got mm. it's got legs. It's not like something that's um just a fluke, essentially. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and since I've been doing it, I've been kind of like, well, how how does this work? Yeah. It feels like magic, doesn't it? <laughs> right, like, it really does. And, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I was just kind of looking at, well, what is the, this thing that kind of draws the, um, you know, the water laterally or even mm -hmm. like vertically against gravity? Mm -hmm. So it's it's kind of, it comes down to the, um, how water molecules, the, the water molecules, right? So you can, they can behave in two ways. They can either stick together, which is like a cohesion, mm -hmm. or they can um, stick to a solid surface, which is adhesion. Mm -hmm. So in our soils where we've got um, the structure, you know, we've got that fine, those fine gaps in between the particles of the soil and also little channels that are made by the microbes or the plant roots or the worms or um, they, the smaller that they are, the better that um, you'll switch over from the water molecules sticking together and flowing together to actually sticking to the sides of those channels. And then they start, then they can start to kind of climb the walls or climb laterally or go against gravity and just 
very slowly sort of spread across the soil. Yeah. And you can imagine it kind of like, um, you know, if you had a, a tissue and you ran a tap through a tissue, it would just puncture through that tissue mm-hmm. and go straight down. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you dripped um, water onto that tissue, it would just slowly spread across and saturate that tissue. And I think we have to think of our soil in that way as um, delivering little and often slowly and gently and then also it does come into how you know how much you till the soil if you mm-hmm. do till a lot you're creating you're, you're basically breaking up those um, little channels and and all of those little micro small um, things that have been um, created and you're aerating and creating bigger particles and bigger channels that that kind of um, capillary flow action mm-hmm. um, struggles to to um, to yeah. use. It, yeah. won't, it won't be able to use it because the the tent the, the yeah. force tension on the side or the adhesion is is not great enough. Yeah. yeah, I'm so glad you you explained that a little bit because I know that's one of the things people will be like, but how does it work? <laughs> and I, <laughs> yeah, been... I just I wanted to know. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> and one of the things when I've been trying to explain it to people is that it's kind of like. If you if you leave the water on for two hours with that drip irrigation and there's just, you know, with drip irrigation, it's just a little plink, 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 plink in the same spot over mm-hmm. and over mm-hmm. and over again. And so that creates this like river effect almost that just is going down in that one straight shot mm. down. Yep. And and the more you feed that river, the more that river is just becoming a big channel and it just goes and it's just going down, down, yeah. down, down, down. Um, which your plant roots at most are usually for what we're growing is at most about six inches or so down in the soil. Like we don't generally have for annual crops, I should say. I mean, perennials are Mm. completely different, but most of the stuff that we're growing is annuals. You know, it's just, it's not much. They don't need water way down. Um, They need water really often close to the surface, especially for young transplants. You know, young transplants that have just been put in and have a tiny root ball, it's of no value to them to have water going way down in in the ground source. So um, being able to find a way to keep that water on the top um, one to two inches, which I don't know is what is in centimeters, sorry. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, no, we we use inches. (laughs) Okay, all right. (laughs) But for the other (laughs) listeners who don't, um, who are using yeah. centimeters. I'm sorry, I should do my conversions. But uh, that, if you can keep moisture around there, all, most of the plants we're using are happy with that. It would be different. It was trees or something. But um, so that's For where sure. the pulse sure. watering, I think, is actually... Uh, it just helps it all spread out because of that tissue analogy you have is perfect. Mm. It just kind of like slowly seeps across instead of having this yeah. downward momentum to go down, 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 you know, that kind yeah. of way. Yeah. So. And, and there's all the advantages that you get with that. So you don't get um, nutrient loss and mm-hmm. leaching and um, you don't waste water, which mm-hmm. is the biggest thing. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And so things that you apply, um, basically uh you know nutrients and things are, are activated by that water so mm-hmm. that 
um, yeah. that plants can access their nutrients better because um, a lot of the nutrients need that kind of water yeah. interaction, don't they, to yeah. kind of release. And, and microbes, because that's the other thing. I, I mm-hmm. Whenever I did switch to overhead irrigation at one point this past season, and mm-hmm. one part of my like thought process behind that was that, A, I was just so frustrated with drip tape before you, <laughs> you introduced me to pulse watering. But B, I've, as the years have gone on as a regenerative farmer, and the more I understand soil health and how the the food web in the soil is really what creates healthy plants. So it's not even necessarily the type of soil you have or like it's not soil that creates healthy plants. It does post, you know, it's it's the the substrate um, that creates healthy plants, but it's really the food web in the soil that creates healthy plants because it's the food web mm. that's feeding the plants ultimately. And by food web, I mean mostly microbes. And microbes need moisture too. And when yeah. we, and they need a lot of moisture, generally speaking. And so whenever we have drip irrigation going on in the in that water deep mentality, that water just goes down and it doesn't spread out across the surface where so many of their, those aerobic microbes that help mm-hmm. our plants' root systems really, you know, thrive. Those are often mm. left in a desert wasteland when it comes to drip tape if, you, if you're if you not doing pulse watering. There's just like yeah. giant bands by, by microbe standards, <laughs> giant bands <laughs> of desert <laughs> in your beds. Um, mm. And now with pulse watering, the whole bed is beautifully, like evenly moist. And that unlocks the power of the microbes. That gives them this chance to really um, procreate <laughs> and eat. Yeah. And poop yeah. and die and all the things that <laughs> microbes do <laughs> to make the plants healthy. So I think that's this in this um, yeah. second, not secondary value, but this like uh, amplifying value of pulse watering yes. that comes through as well. Yeah. And, and another advantage is, I guess, you know, we we often don't see stress, water stress in plants by the time we see it um, and we see drooping or, or things, you know, c- some cavitation has occurred, which is essentially cavitation is like um, the there's a tension between between the leaf and the root system and um, the cavitation is the process where the tension kind of bursts through the cell wall and then um, oxygen kind of molecules are there there's air there in the in the pipes and that prevents things from drinking and Mm. so we we often don't know that our plants are water stressed before just by looking at them Mm -hmm. so the benefit of this system is that you're just constantly maintaining that moisture level there and you're not going through these big extreme cycles Mm -hmm. of dry and wet and dry and too wet and yeah so (laughs) yeah that's the other advantage you're just providing exactly what it needs it you know you have to be careful about how you do it you don't want to oversaturate the soil because you're wasting you might start leaching you you know you're actually using too much too much water um and then yeah so it, it takes a little bit depending on your soil depending on your temperature your evaporation rate um to play around with the timing. So it's not going to be the same sort of six times a day for five minutes for everyone. You really have mm-hmm. to look at the soil that you have and the climate that you live in to um, to really, um, yeah, observe it, you know, put your finger in, dig down yeah. to a certain level, see how it's going. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. One of the tricks that I've found just for observation, it's it, so much of what we do as regenerative farmers, or um, even if you don't identify as a regenerative farmer, just a good farmer, I would say, <laughs> is that you need to have tremendous powers of observation to see what's happening, mm. what's helping, what's hurting. And the, the changes in our plants can be so subtle, like you're saying with water stress, you maybe don't necessarily notice that until it's mm. too late. One of the tools I've been using lately for myself is to just take pictures of a crop literally every day. If it's a, you know, like I have a lot of new plantings in a greenhouse space that's it's still, um, it's new soil for me too. It's like a new space altogether. And for me to like kind of learn and understand exactly how the soil is functioning, I am making sure to take a picture of the crops every single day in the space. And so I can lit. Too often there's like really subtle changes that we won't notice. But if you can put mm -hmm. pictures right next to each other, you start to see like there's a little bit of yellowing here that wasn't there yesterday. Okay, maybe I need to back off on the water a little bit. Or, oh, they're really starting to green up really nicely. And, you know, over this three-day period, I added manganese to the foliar feed. That That's working, you know. So I, mm. it's. You can make all the notes you want, but until you have like a spread of photos, it's uh, it's amazing what a series of photos can um, mm. can really reveal. So I'd I'd say that's a good tool if you're if you're not necessarily a believer right away in pulse watering, you can, <laughs> you could <laughs> um, uh, test it out on one bed and take those photos over the series of a couple days, and I bet you'll see a, a tremendous mm. change for anybody who's skeptic about this. So. But yeah, I love that idea. It's like a visual journal and it's yeah. just an interesting thing to have anyway for yeah. your farm and for yeah. growth and right. for knowledge and learning. Yeah. yeah. And you're not yeah, going to do it with great. every single crop and every single bed, but I think it's really helpful if you're having a problem area and you're trying yeah. to figure out what the problem is, but you've done the soil test and you're, you're like, I don't know, I don't know exactly what's happening and you're going to try a few things, then um, the photo journal really can kind of help with that so absolutely I think we've hopefully convinced people. I mean, I can just say for anybody who's listening, I am such a convert to pulse watering. I'm I'm absolutely convinced. Um, the the challenge then becomes how to implement it effectively across mm -hmm. a large farm because this yeah. is easy enough to do in a in a tunnel or a small you know cutting garden area but that's why earlier mm -hmm. i was stressing that you have this large stretched out production area so how do you guys effectively manage watering lots of different places uh in a pulse water yeah. system because that's that's a complex system yeah, it, it, and it certainly seemed like that as well. You know, like, to be honest, when we started um, started farming, we were like, how are we going to get irrigation to all these different areas or zones? Um, and, yeah, we've had multiple sort of kind of minor tantrums trying to figure <laughs> this stuff out because it's really hard. Like, we yeah. trotted off to our local sort of farm irrigation supply place and they really didn't 
weren't that interested in dealing with a small farm that um, had a, you know, we started with a small growing area first in, in our first year. So they were, you know, they're used to dealing with big farms and big, yeah. big money coming back to them through the sales. So we had to sit down and work this kind of stuff out ourselves. And thank goodness for my husband, Greg, because he's really um, um, mathematically minded or, or a lot more so than me. <laughs> we need those people. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. But I do remember it being a really confronting, like overwhelming thing to begin with. But now that we've done it and we've worked through it, it feels really easy and really simple. Um, but we do, I guess, and, and this might be something that, you know, it's a bit of an investment, but we do have a controller that has um, zones that you can program. So it's a 12 zone controller and it's set up, you know, and you have to have it plugged into power. And then we have a manifold, um, which is essentially something that all the zones, are the solenoids, which are the electrical things that turn the zones on and off through that controller, they're attached um, to that. And then each line comes in from the farm and, and it's just physically laying that line and because we're a farm where people visit we can't lay our lines on top of the ground as a trip hazard so we we have to lay them in the ground and and in fact we prefer that because if they lay above the ground it's black plastic it moves it actually also creates air, a lot more air in the line if mm. you do that so if you can bury it a little bit and keep it cool and dark and in place it has less sort of um, expansion and contraction basically also the all lines. the mowing that you have to do <laughs> and all the mowing I can't mow over irrigation lines right. with, my, with my big ride on <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so yeah so every new area I mean we, I think we're on um we're currently using about seven zones so we still have room for expansion on our on our controller um and you know each zone well each zone is the size it is based on the drip, the amount of drip line that we're using in that zone. So if you have, um, and, and your drip line, what, whatever you're using will tell you how many litres per um, minute that will come out. And then you do some, some maths and you'll convert that and, and you'll be able to say, I can support this amount of drip line in this zone before I lose pressure, basically. Okay. So it's all low pressure line, drip line, because you don't want to high pressure coming slamming out of that that line so you've got to have these kind of pressure reducers back at the manifold sort of um, where the solenoids are you've got to have that in place so that you're only sending out a low pressure into that into that line but um yeah we just run a run like a poly a rural poly pipe or a low density pipe to that zone and then it's probably exactly the same as you we have a header and then we have um, our drip line coming off that I I um tend to for every single drip line that I have I use a valve at the top and a valve at the bottom so the valve at the top is just if um, I get a leak I can immediately turn that line mm -hmm. off and I'm not like oh the whole the whole so I have to run back and turn the whole system off I can just turn that off if I'm not ready to um, fix that at that particular right. point the rest of rest <laughs> of the zone can keep watering until <laughs> until I can come back to that right and then I have a, the same little opening valve at the end of the line, which just works as a flush, a flushing of the line. Oh, I was going to ask you what the valve at the end is for. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then um, my husband really like he's, he over-engineers things. I complain about it, but I do appreciate it <laughs> most of the time. He would argue that it's not over-engineering, but he also puts a, like a big valve on the end of the header. So he likes to flush that line okay. as well, which 
actually seems to make a lot of sense now that I've said yeah. it out loud. Do you have sediment heavy water or that's just generally like... Um... We, well, we are watering from from a dam, so it is oh, quite dirty, gotcha. heavy water. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Yep, yep. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah, but the drip line has these brilliant little micro filters that are mm-hmm. built in and they, they do deal with it really well. So I, I won't use the standard sort of standard drip line that you might get okay. in a hardware store. I, I have to use this sort of high-tech... Yeah. Um, uh, tape that's that's designed okay. for agricultural production yeah is it a pressure compensating tape at all do you know like I've started using a pressure compensating one at my farm because I have a slight mm-hmm. slope at my farm so I've been trying to make sure that there's even watering across the whole thing and I didn't know if you have that at all or not that's a good question I don't I don't know I know that it just requires a certain pressure to use it but I'm not sure if it has that compensation in okay. it I, I know that they recently brought out three different versions of of the company that I use three different versions of that tape okay um so but yeah we're we're not we're not farming particularly on on big slopes Slopes. although my my new field does have a nice sort of drainage sort of off it but yeah um that's there that's a good point I might go and look that up I'm just curious Mm. do you know what um uh PSI you're supposed to be running through yours by any chance do you have an idea I think mine's yeah. at 15 but I didn't know if your system yeah. is about the same it says around nine I okay. think so our pressure reducer is a 10 PSI and, okay. and below okay. yeah so that's what we're using okay mm. yeah that's one thing with the pulse watering I'm still trying to figure out if maybe I do have mindset at too high of a pressure, um, which mm. might be part of the reason it does get kind of boggy really fast almost from pulse watering, which is still blowing my mind that such a small amount of water <laughs> makes it outright boggy. <laughs> but uh, maybe I'll get another reducer to try and see if that um, slows yeah. it down a little bit. So, yeah. Yeah, that's an easy swap out, isn't yeah. it? You can just unplug that one and plug yeah. in, a, in a new reducer. Yeah, yeah. And just see how it goes. Yeah. Um, For the sake of listeners who are really, really new to irrigation, I just want to say that um, the place I get my irrigation from, this is in the U.S., and they can ship Mm -hmm. U.S.-wide, is Nolts Produce Supply. They're based in Pennsylvania, where I live, so that's why I use them, because I can go get their products like Mm -hmm. without having to pay shipping there's also a big company here in the u.s called dripworks which is a lot a lot of um, small farmers use in the u.s Um, so those are two just two suppliers and i just name them because sometimes people who are listening are brand new and they literally have nowhere to go so i like to put as much information as I, i can so then emma do you have suggestions for australian growers like of good suppliers down there that they might start with if they have no idea where to begin yeah, we're not, we're not as lucky as you in the US with a one-stop shop. So it's a little bit of um, buying this, sourcing this from here and sourcing that from there. So the tape brand that I use is made by Toro. Um, and uh, I can't I can't remember if it's got a certain fancy name to it, but it's, it's basically yeah, a, a tape made by Toro. And then the actual equivalent, they do make um, the fittings that, um, that go into that. Um, and then you can just, for the, for the standard polypipe, you, you know, you use green line for high pressure and you can use low density polypipe for this low pressure for, for any kind of drip line um, that has that pressure reducing. So that's cheap and you can just buy it at your general hardware store down here, which is Bunnings or 
might attend. Um, and then, yeah, I generally have to, in Tasmania, I can't access my uh, fittings anywhere. Mm. Uh, so I have to order them online from a company in, in Queensland. And um, yeah, and we just we just ship them in. I think oh, I'm trying to remember the name of them, actually. That'll come to me later if I'm I sorry. remember it. But you can shout it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or I can give it to you to pop <laughs> yeah. in the show notes or something. Where yeah. did you, um, if you, if you can remember, where did you get your controller or what's the brand name of the controller if people are trying oh, yeah. to find one? Since that, that mm. really is the, the heart of pulse watering. You got to have something yeah. that helps you time all the waterings. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the brand that we use is Hunter. Um, and that's a really good brand, a really well-known, um, reliable brand. I think there's there's a few of them, but um, okay. we've found that to be really good. It actually, you know, it's one of those ones that plugs into an app on your phone. So oh, nice. you can li- you can literally be in bed, hear the rain on the roof and just <laughs> roll over and turn it, <laughs> turn it off. Yay. <laughs> that's awesome. If, you, if we can, we'll try to include a link in the show notes for listeners to be able to quickly yeah. just tap on there and find it. I've been using, because I didn't invest yet in the big controller, though I plan to this coming year, I've just been using like a little, um, I think it's called a dig dig timer I think it's what it's called so you can it's really affordable it's just 40 bucks um, and you can set up the pulse watering with that but it's really limited to basically it's one zone you you can't like do multiple zones off of it it's just like wherever you're going to do it is is where it's getting done so I'm ready I'm ready to step it up and get that controller so I can do all the zones on all of it Um, but if you if somebody wants to test this out and you're not willing to make a huge investment first totally understand that was where I am was and so get one of these just little um I'll put a link in the show notes it's dig something is the name of it but um it's it's really affordable battery operated mm. you just set up the timing for it and then you can take it all for a test run and become a true believer <laughs> as well yeah yeah <laughs> after and, a and that's... trial and probably the way you did it is the way to do it, which is um, just to test it in an area first before you convert mm-hmm. your whole system yeah. and, and iron out the problems and figure out your spacing and how yeah. many lines and yeah. and things like that. But yeah. oh, the relief that comes from knowing that you're it, it was a it's a true anxiety, mm-hmm. isn't it? When your plants are water stressed, yeah. it's like you have that connection with them mm-hmm. and you can't feel good. And, yeah. and, and yeah. then. And then the other way around, when they're when they're happy, you just know, and the relaxation that comes from that is incredible. Yeah, yeah. And it and it's also just so it feels so much more peaceful to not have anxiety about like for me with the mm-hmm. well or with you your dam, you mm-hmm. know. At some point, th- these things run dry if you're not being yep. conservative with your water, if you're not being smart, and then to sit there and know that you're currently dry and you don't know when it's going to get better, and that anxiety is just like, whew, that, that hit hard mm-hmm. this year, this past year for me in 2022. It was that was the mm-hmm. roughest I'd had it um, with that anxiety. So it does if feels wonderful to be able to walk away from that. So even if the controller is going to be a fair investment and putting in, I'll, I'll have to run some new um, manifold lines to, you know, to, to run it all out of this one one controller, that yeah. that is an investment. But 
gosh, peace of mind is <laughs> priceless. So I, it yeah. seems well worth it to me in general. It's really worth it. Yeah. yeah, if you can do it, even if you're just doing a zone a season and that's all mm -hmm. you can afford, mm -hmm. you know, just running that in. And, and literally that's what we've done, you know, as we expanded the farm, we're just putting one more zone in and connecting it up to that. So I would say by, you know, especially think about your grand plans and the size of your farm. So we thought that a 12 zone controller would, would cover us mm -hmm. and I think it it will so um yeah uh, you probably get away with sort of 12 zones or or less would be good but buy the biggest best controller you can to yeah. um yeah. That you can afford it's a bit like your fertigation unit as well mm -hmm. so we, we have a small fertigation unit mm -hmm. which is a like a pressure tank attached to this system as well so it comes in and and I, I it's quite a small one it's 5.7 liters I think and um it's not a use, it's not the kind of size of tank that if you were to be dissolving things and, and needing to put on a certain amount at a certain time, you'd have to use a huge amount of water to get that small amount mm. onto the bed. But I use it as a um, as just a micro flow of nutrients, just going every time I'm fertilizing, I'm just having a micro dose of mm. of um of a liquid fertilizer sort of going through like an organic one. Um, with some humic acid and fulvic acid and things like that, sort of just flowing through, just ticking through and delivering it. But, um, yeah, we we um, buy the biggest fertigation unit you can afford as well, was my <laughs> advice for that. So, so I totally agree. Uh, quick follow-up on how that exactly works. So that's near where your controller is and it's kind of at the, mm. is that before your manifold or after your manifold? Because if you want to be able to send it to different zones, I assume it's before the manifold, otherwise you wouldn't it be is. able to. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's kind of, so you've got a main line that comes in. We've got a flow meter that tells mm -hmm. us how much water we're using. And then it ticks over to this kind of um, ball valve, which um, the water water coming in then pushes down through the uh, fertigation unit okay. and it does its kind of special mixing in the cap of the fertigation unit. Okay. So uh, a common misconception is that the water just floods straight directly into the tank and it, mm -hmm. and then you're like, well, how yeah, it'll get that diluted, just diluted, concentrate. Diluted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or just force really thick concentrate sure. back yeah. out the line. But it actually does this very clever sort of painted kind of dilution yeah. um, similar to if you do a click on hose thing you know mm -hmm. it's got the the pressure it's just stealing a tiny little, little smidge of it of and it, you can yes. yeah and you can adjust that right so then it then it comes out and then we head down into the manifold and it splits okay. into all the zones yeah. um from there yeah cool and how often are you fertigating? This wasn't actually a question I was planning on lobbing at you, but like, um, yeah. you know, given that you this ties into the irrigation system, how how frequently mm. are you putting it in with with what you're running the water when? Yeah, so I'm just topping up that tank with um with a concentrate, um which is like a seaweed and fish and humic mm -hmm. acid and uh, and then uh it's just running the whole time. Oh, okay. So, so it's on, not just on, like on a some days you're doing it and other days you're not. It's no. just like any time the irrigation is on, it's picking up tiny little yeah. bits of this. Okay. Cool. It's just it's such a small thing, you know, just that's going through that. It's a micro dose that's mm -hmm. going through the lines and yeah, I mean, honestly, I wouldn't remember to turn it on and off. So everything's well, automated what I was now. So it's just got to be every time. <laughs> All right. That's why I was like, wow, you are really with it. You Like, I don't know, you've got zones and pulsing and all of these things. And no, you're no, going to remember it's... how to like turn this on and off. 
<laughs> no, it's all because I'm notorious at forgetting to turn off taps and I have drained full tanks of water in the past. Oh, and, gosh. Um, this is a necessary system for me. I cannot remember to go back and yeah. especially can't remember to go back and turn a tap on six times a day and turn it off five minutes later. So, exactly. No. Exactly. What's also nice about this is if you implement this system in general and it's got a whole brain of its own, you no longer, I don't know if any other farmers out there do this, but I constantly used to have timers set on my phone to remind me to go turn off the irrigation. And then it'd be like that stupid timer every time it goes off, gives me a tiny little anxiety buzz you know <laughs> yeah and I'd inevitably be like right in the middle of a phone conversation on the other side of the farm and be like oh crap oh. so it is nice to yeah. just not have your timer yelling at you all the time to to um go turn off the irrigation <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I love I love all that. And in light of the climate change that is just getting snowballing along here and more and more droughts and more water crisis on our planet, I think that mm -hmm. even if you're a listener right now who is not currently in a water crisis, um, it's still worth knowing about the system getting prepared to have the system, because I can tell you from experience that it's so much harder to take your brain out of that crisis, emergency, anxiety-ridden mode in the moment of water stress and get your ducks in a row and get the system in place. Like, I mm. am really excited to now spend this winter getting the system in place for myself and knowing going into next year, like, okay. So even if you're this, like, whatever, I've rain all the time, Emma and Jenny, like, well, what do I need to do this for? Um, it's raining outside. Why yeah, am I installing irrigation? Yeah, I'm I, getting wet now. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's still something I want every every listener to think about because um, there, there's really no two ways around it. I hate to be doom and gloomy, but drought is going to come to every part of our world. This is the reality. Weather events are extreme and unpredictable. And so what your life is like one month to the next can be so, so, so different. Um mm. And just just being ready, being ready is what our jobs as farmers is now what we need to do. You know, like instead of just growing a crop, our job is also to be um, magically wizardly ready <laughs> for any scenario. <laughs> so good luck, y'all. <laughs> but yeah, that's the, no pressure. Yeah, no pressure. Just become a wizard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Get your little uh, yeah. magic ball out and stuff. But hopefully conversations like this will empower yeah. everybody to to think and to also know that another small farm that doesn't have some sort of, you know, I mean, I know Greg is excellent at, you know, fabricating and math and stuff, but you guys did this yourselves. This didn't, this isn't yeah. like something you had to bring in special people to do. So it is doable. No. Yeah. We, we couldn't access the information at the time and we just had to really sit down and nut it out. And it was hard, mm -hmm. you know, it really was mm -hmm. hard. And, 
Yeah, and I think I said to you I'd be uh, I'm going to just put together like a little fact sheet yeah. for any listeners that I can just um, sort of send this off about pulse watering and kind Perfect. of condense the information that um, John was talking about and and also the, the the system that I have so that we can kind of share that for people, make that easy to access because yeah, the more people are sort of exactly like what you're saying, you know, we've got to we've got to future proof ourselves, we've got a future farm, we've got to be thinking now about what are we going to be dealing with in in um in the future so yeah um it's really really important and i i really thank you for bringing this kind of topic up in the in the space of flower farming because we hear about a lot on the news and climate change but actually how are we directly going to apply that to us as flower farmers and what does that mean for growing in in a climate that has extreme weather and yeah it's really really important um to be talking about it now yeah, we, can we can't stick our heads in the sand. I think that too often that's that's some people's approaches, but we, we just, there's no point in sticking your head in the sand. It's only going to get harder to do what we do. So yeah. we might as well, yeah. might as well put our brains together. Speaking of putting brains together, you work at the Center for Excellence also as, a, as your other job, <laughs> not just flower farming, and you're working mm-hmm. with an incredible team there. So can you tell me a little bit about how there's this think tank in... Tasmania that's going to like tackle some mm. big picture climate change questions and just to, just to go down that rabbit hole for just a little bit I want people to understand like <laughs> the amazing information that's out there yeah yeah sure so yeah I, I'm a I'm a farmer florist but I also do um, two days a week as um, an educational outreach officer for and this is a long title but it's the center of excellence <laughs> for plant success in nature and agriculture so it's a it's an Australia-wide center of excellence so the Australian Research Council funds centers of excellence so they I, I guess literally cherry pick um, uh, the best scientists and the research teams from different universities around Australia and they bring them together into a centre of excellence. And yeah, our particular centre is focusing on how we can um, make plants succeed in a changing climate um, as we are heading towards hotter, drier and more extreme weather patterns. So yeah, we've got really interesting research that's happening across the centre. Um, that uh, So in Tasmania here, we've got really interesting research on um, both on uh, cavitation in plants so they're they're looking at cavitation within eucalypts specifically and and other plants Um, and then also microbial um, relationships with plants so um, all these beneficial relationships that um, micros have with with plants and I uh, it's honestly the best job because I'm not a scientist, but I'm hanging out with lots right. of amazing scientists. <laughs> so and jealous, I can just honestly <laughs> like really just, want your job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's really hard to give up. I know I should be applying myself full time to my farming. I've heard you say that before. No, no, Jenny, no. I take all that back. I take all that back. If your job is to work with incredible leaders in um, this kind of science, you stay there and report yeah. back to the rest yeah, yeah. of us. <laughs> Okay, I shall. Okay, yeah. it's my duty now. But no, I'm super, super lucky. And and to be able to um, kind of design resources and things, I, I really have to understand it because I, um, so I'm just going on this incredible learning journey. I've been in the job for about a year now and loving it. And I've got a great outreach lead um, 
Dr. Uh, sorry, Associate Professor Eloise Fu, and she's she's doing uh, microbes and, and things. She'd be a great person for you to get yeah, on the podcast. I, I think that might have to happen. <laughs> yeah, she's brilliant, and she, I, I ask her all the time. You know, like recently, I was noticing with all this rain, a bit of leaching in my soil, and some yellowing kind of coming through. It's just con- consistent rain, and having sandy soil, and and these lovely raised beds that I've made. I I am getting this kind of full mm. flushing of of nutrients kind of coming through and you know I'm on the phone to her you know but what about my microbes you know because if I'm going to give them some nitrogen or something she's like no look if your plants are stressed your microbes are stressed you know okay. and, they, and yes it is an in, inorganic um, kind of chemical if you're giving a little bit of calcium nitrate or something but you're not applying it just broadcast you know across the thing just without thinking about it or urea that's really unstable and just flushing out of the system you know you you're actually just giving them a little boost of what they Mm. need at this point in time so it's been really really good to have that kind of advice and also understanding you know plants are really smart I learned that um, they kind of had this kind of controlling relationships over microbes where they're like Actually, I've got enough, you know, if you apply a lot of nitrogen or you have high nitrogen soils, they're just kind of, you know, the microbes rock up to the roots and they're like, no, thanks. We don't need you. We're good to go. We've got enough. (laughs) But if they're really, really hungry, they're like, you know, they're like, oh, please come over. Please, please come over for dinner. Right. Yeah. And infiltrate. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I've been, um, I was listening, I think to some podcasts, I forget where this, um, or maybe I was reading a book. I don't know. I've been reading and listening to so many things right now because it's winter for us. So, you know, yeah. uh, it's my consumption. Like all I can do is consume, consume, consume information right yeah. now. But basically the the concept of endophytic microbes, so microbes that live inside the root. So there's these microbes mm. that go inside, bacteria in particular. Yeah. Oh, I know it was Jeff, um, Jeff, uh, a Lohenfeld's um, new book, which is teeming with bacteria, I think is the title of it. But basically, he was explaining this relationship where plants are actually farmers themselves, which was super cool to me to think about that. And they are, um, and I hope I do this justice, um, they are, he, he likened it to sheep farmers. So basically, they take in this livestock, these little bacteria come inside the roots, um, mm-hmm. live in the roots, and while they're inside the roots, the the plant um, basically shears them of their of their cell walls, and so like you would shear a sheep of its wool, and the plant mm-hmm. then can um, digest that cell wall, and that's providing nitrogen and other nutrients to the plant, and. It, and that's like mind blowing in and of itself, right? But then what's crazy totally. is they put the sheep, quote unquote, out to pasture again. So they siphon, they send those bacteria back out into the soil from the roots. This is all happening in like the root tip. And they send, or the root hairs mostly, in the root hairs. And they send those, quote unquote, sheep back out into the soil where the sheep go, the bacteria sheep, go through the process of regrowing their, quote unquote, wool, which is their cell walls. And then the plants bring them back inside <laughs> and shear them again. 
<laughs> and it's like this whole nutrient cycle that has literally nothing to do with what we humans are giving our plants. It's like entirely regulated by the plant themselves. Yeah. The plant has yeah. this system. They don't need the humans. And it's it's phenomenal. It's like, like a little bit mind-blowing. Mm -hmm. uh, and... It makes you realize it's, am it's amazingly yeah. mind blowing. It's <laughs> right. just so fascinating. And yeah. like, what do we even know? Is part of what it makes me realize. Like, what do we even know about plants and microbes? We we know so little at this point. We know nothing. 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 <laughs> so that's nothing. why I think I'm gonna have to have Eloise on the on the podcast too, <laughs> to oh, tease yeah. apart all of this stuff. But yeah, yeah. Well, the, the goal is to just not use you know not use fertilizers mm -hmm. and yeah. just access all the nitrogen that we have in the atmosphere right. and and yeah. sort of that's the goal yeah so yeah. that's what her research team is kind yeah. of looking at and very cool. understanding oh i love yeah. it so many things to learn in the world which is always the challenge to, <laughs> which is the <laughs> to fun manage part it. switch gears a little bit, but it's not really switching gears. Uh, it, I think it might tie back into pulse watering, but you told me about how you had this growing area that was really subpar soil. It was like shallow, not yeah. good quality, um, sandy soil. And then you had the strategy for basically bringing it online and making it this healthy, robust thing. You did a lot of changes in a short amount of time. You want to talk about that? Because I know there's people that yeah. need that info. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I well, we have um, agronomists, which I think are the equivalent of your extension agents. Mm -hmm. So we have we have access to agronomists um, um, who you know mainly working with big agriculture. So, um, but they help us facilitate getting a sort of a soil test in place. So. We um, got him out and we um, we had two areas that we could choose. So one of the paddocks up, up, up the back, which is a lot further further away, and then the, the paddock directly adjacent to the start of the farm where um, where we are, which so it's the it's the best location, but it turned out it was the worst soil. Oh, so no. it, it, <laughs> you know, he got his little compression thing and he plunged it <laughs> in. He goes, Oh, you know, like there's hardly any topsoil here yeah. and it's really was poor, that where you had horses soil. at one point or why do you know why the it's not great area I th there? I think Probably just the topography. Yes, we did um, have horses, but we had that across the farm. Okay. Um, it's just the layout. I think uh, we have a lot of runoff at the back of the farm as it as it goes up. Um, so it's just a little bit deeper. There's more deposits there mm. that are kind of running off the hill behind, and this one is sort of a little bit more more on a broader sort of the higher point of the okay. farm. I think so. That okay. I think that's just the reason. But before we bought the farm, it was a chicken farm and there was chickens running all over this area. So you would think to yourself, oh, there's going to be lots of lovely chicken manure mm. sort of bedded in here. <laughs> but yeah, we got we got the soil test back and it was really it was low, 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 very low, low, mm. low, low. Um, I think the uh, pH was 4.9, oh. super acidic. Oh, yeah, Ouch. yeah. <laughs> So we were like, okay, this is going to be a really, really good growing challenge because I want to grow here. This is the best location. This is um, this is where I need it to be. So, yeah, so we went through a process. It took about nine months um, and we've got plants in the ground now. So um, 
we wanted to, you know, um, do it without chemicals or sprays because we don't kind of use that on the farm. So we, um, instead of having the time to um, solarise it or put put the black tarps or anything on it, we actually just uh, lifted the grass layer. So um, because we have a weed on our farm called sorrel, which is mm-hmm. um, a perennial, a persistent perennial weed that has runners. And it's it's a bit like a gremlin. You know, you pull one out and you throw it into the path and you mow it and it divides into five right. and then it'll keep growing. <laughs> we have similar weeds here, pain in the yeah. ass. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I just found when I prepared my first area, we did the same, but without knowing why. Like mm-hmm. we just did it because that's what we had a tractor and we could do that. And we just, um, yeah, we just had a lot less weed pressure if we very carefully just kind of like lawn scalped off off the top. Yeah. Yeah. Which normally you'd think, oh, you shouldn't do that. That's all organic matter. You can rot that down. That's that's an inch of topsoil. Don't Mm -hmm. lose that. But um, we had felled some big eucalyptus trees and into that area to give it a bit of life. So we had some big old sort of um, Mm -hmm. trees that needed to go. And... um, and they had dropped thousands of kind of acidic little gum nuts. Yeah. And we were just like, we, yeah. So it was it was a really conscious choice to remove that to begin with. Okay. So then we were left with even less topsoil. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> we're like, okay. So then, and high compaction. So we had to do that first off till. We just had to do it. Yeah. And it's okay. Um, For the record, it's okay to till if it's what you need to do. The problem with just sort of mindless tilling, that's where the problem is, where it's just like, whatever, I till, I just till. If you don't have like a valid reason for tilling, that's when things get a little dicey. No judgment on anybody listening, but just thoughtful tillage is like necessary Mm. occasionally and it sounds like this was one of those scenarios you probably had to work in a lot of organic matter or something and it was compacted and you needed to open it up yeah we had we had um big couple of trucks of compost and Mm. even that you know like you'd spread it around and it would just kind of disappear into Mm -hmm. this sand sandy Mm -hmm. soil so so then we we limed you know to bring that um acidity up and we put in two different types of lime like a prilled lime which is a ground you know quick access okay. lime and and then also a um just a, your slow release like your um agriculture standard agricultural lime which is a larger fragment and just takes longer to break down and and be accessed so um yeah and then and and then amendments so we um we're really lucky here in Tassie we've got um do you know Steve Solomon oh yeah he's <laughs> yeah so he's an American and he yeah. now lives in the north of of Taz oh, and he nice. has come down and um, written a self-published a beautiful book, um, which I brought in today to show you. Oh, it's cool. um, growing vegetables south of Australia, and wow. I think he did one called um, growing veg growing vegetables south of the um, or oh, sorry west of the. Oh, I wrote it down here somewhere. Sorry. <laughs> um, here it is. Here it is. Growing vegetables uh, west of the Cascades was oh, his right. American yep, vision. Yep, yep. So he used to have the Territorial Seed Company. Yeah. Very smart mm-hmm. cookie. And, yeah. Yeah. And so he's, he's he has um, developed this thing, which just about every Tasmanian uses, which is called Complete Organic Fertilizer. It's a recipe. Oh, cool. And so that's what I've based my kind of fertilizer, my organic fertilizing sort of system off. So I buy all the separate ingredients and then I mix it as per this as well as adding things like some powdered clay, which is what I need in my sandy soil and soluble humates and and things like that as well. So I added this mixture on uh, these kind of amendments and then we, um, yeah, then we grew a winter cover crop. 
So we had um, pe- uh, oats, peas, and winter uh, winter peas and winter beans. Okay. Uh, and yeah, and so and that was the first test of like how we got this perfect germination, great rain after the seed went down and it was just perfect timing, thank goodness. <laughs> it's so nice when it, it works doesn't always out. happen that way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah hallelujah. But yeah. yeah, but that, that was a really green, healthy crop. And mm-hmm. so we were just, um, we grew that all winter and it, it did really well. And by the time we were ready sort of to terminate in, uh, at the end of winter, we were kind of pulling the roots up and lots of nodulation and um, on the beans especially. So we were, I was super excited. I was like, yeah. this is this is starting to work. We know that there's good stuff happening in the soil there. So, so we, I, you know, with that idea of like so little topsoil and wanting to add that organic matter back in, we, we flail mow, mow the crop down. And then I actually mowed it again with a push mower okay just to get oh, it into a smaller a workout <laughs> yeah yeah oh this is not for the faint-hearted <laughs> but, but it does work yeah but so, it chopped yeah, it up really well I spe- yeah, yeah really fine mm-hmm. yeah the smaller the smaller the possible and then we had to do one more till which was a rotor till like a hand okay. till because mm-hmm. I didn't at that stage want to get the tractor and the heavy tires in right. on that soil so yeah. We just did a push till um, hmm. by hand. Poor Greg. That was the hardest thing he's ever done. It was a slog <laughs> incorporating all of that oh cut gosh. material down. Yeah. And then um, and then we could uh, use the tractor to form the rows. So okay. Greg's really handy and made a great little bed former for me. Um, and so we, we wanted... Uh, good raised soil we've had huge floods here in Australia mm. with um, especially with um, growing dahlias and lots and lots of flower farmers this year have lost so many tubers and um, yeah it's and a lot a lot of you can see on Instagram you know a lot of irrigation sort of um, drainage pipes and systems yeah. going in to sort of mitigate that problem again so um, but so for me I was like okay I, I need raised beds and they're quite high raised raised beds and that they will settle over time but um and they're just mounded correct they're not like you put wooden sides on most of your beds is that right oh no yeah not for these ones no it's just formed with that tractor sort of um pushes it up and folds Mm -hmm. it over and then you do some nice raking to make it really level and yeah and then and then we cover it with our um sort of biodegradable um cloth that we use which Mm -hmm. is called weed gunnel um and I say biodegradable, it does, you know, it does break down and it does break down into microplastics and it's not ideal to use. And it's it's one of those things that, you know, very much in Tasmania where it's cool, we really benefit from a black coloured mm. cloth on our soil. It really, really helps us sort of get things going earlier. And I, and I was very sceptical about it, but actually mulching in this cool short season is um, keeps the soil really cold and mm-hmm. it's very slow for things to get started. Um, so I'm I'm doing conversions. I want to get to that point where I'm, um, you know, two or three years in where I've really knocked um, the perennial weeds on their right. head. I'll be removing that cloth and then uh, the same in the path. I've got it in the path now so that I can kind of kill off those perennial weeds and I can put some wood chips down. And, um, and I've just found it's going, it's, working really well so Good. yeah so back to back to this plot we I got the soil test back this week so for the from the first one to this one and 
Yeah, the pH is now six point. I think it's six point eight. Oh my gosh! Four point nine. Congratulations! Yes. And Thank that you. was in the course I- of basically <laughs> just like one, one, not even one growing season, like one sort of no, nine, nine months season. Yeah, yeah, that's phenomenal. And, and more notably, you know, the organic matter is nine point four. Wow! Wow! Yeah which has actually come out at high. <laughs> says, know, that is like you know. a little bit high, but you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it'll be fine. So and, wait, wait, can um, we go back? Can I ask you real quick, how much compost did you put on? Because that's not all. I mean, I know the peas and the, you know, the beans did a lot, but that's like, yeah. you must have put a lot of compost on. Well, I think it's it's the actual um, the the terminated crop was the largest amount of mm. um, of the organic matter. We we did put it. I think it was a truckload on each. I can't remember what the size of the truck it was. A big truck. Okay. Um, but I, it was a large area, and when I spread it out, I almost felt like it would disappear by the time I got to the bottom of the field. So okay. it would it would Just only like be a bit an inch or like something. One, okay. Yeah, or even less than that. Even. I think, per, wow across the soil wow. yeah and I, I I would have put more if I could have afforded it at the yeah. time but I yeah. just was like no I have to that's a tremendous change for not that I mean I'm sure the yeah. compost was not cheap but that's not a huge mm. Mm. You, sometimes I think personally whenever I look at bad ground not that there's any like truly bad ground but you know for farming purposes Mm. it can feel like man I'm gonna have to spend years and I'm gonna put so much money into this before I can even really feel like this is a good spot and it sounds like you Mm. did it really quickly and not that much of investment in it yeah no, so we we did. I guess there was two editions of amendments of um, from the time I got to plant. So I did, I did that first initial one when we first tilled, just to try and um, get things down a bit mm-hmm. deeper. You know, like in that sort of um, area. And then we did a, a an application on the top of the formed beds before we covered them, so that we did we did that as well. So, okay. and I also put a, so we put the, the complete Steve's complete organic fertilizer mix, <laughs> cough, we call it cough. in Tassie, put some cough down. And, That's funny. and, and we have a, another great sort of company in Australia called Neutrog and they're quite sort of dedicated to um, organic farming sort of products. And so yeah. they've got a product called Seamungus, which is mm. a chicken manure base with fish and kelp and um, hu- uh, humic acid. Mm-hmm. So and so I use that in a pelleted form and I also use that in my fertigation in a liquid form. Okay. So that's the two products that I use. Um, so that and compost. And so those are my three additions that I that I use. Yeah. And yeah, and all of the all of the um, things apart from boron, which is only like 0.1 off normal, <laughs> they all come up into the normal range, which wow. is the best um, soil test. And I've been testing my soil for 20 years um, in different, you know, I was testing it before for the horses and for the pasture that mm. I was growing. So it's really good to have that that starting oh, wow. point for us. Congratulations. I'm just, I'm just here to say yeah. bravo. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> you should be so yeah. proud of that. Really, really, really happy. It's been yeah. really, it's been a really good learning yeah. um, exercise. And yeah. yeah, I'm really excited to see how the yeah. the plants, that that being said, you know, we've done everything kind of right on that soil level, but we do still have these challenges of too much rain this spring mm-hmm. and too much, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit of uh, bleaching and shifting yeah. and just the damp, cold, you yeah. know. 
So we're really looking forward to some some summer heat and yeah, and seeing everything sure. thrive. So mm. can we tease apart what you did there a little bit? I'm thinking that the power of cover crops is most evident yes. in what you've just outlined. It, uh, and I can actually prove that because I also pre- I prepared two growing areas this year. Yeah. One of them I got the timing right on the cover crop, and the other one I didn't. I did it a little bit later. Let's say two weeks later. Yeah. And that was it. It just did not take off. Okay. So I, d- I was trying to do these two areas. They all got the same amendments and okay. compost. Okay. And everything was the same except for the cover crop. Wow. And and actually the you know the results I've made slight slight improvements in the lower field where mm-hmm. I'm where I'm growing um, without that cover crop um, with the results of the test but um, I think I, I brought the pH up from I think it was 5.9 to 6.2 so not it's a still huge something, difference but yeah but still, nothing compared to the other one yeah yeah, yeah yeah but still you know it's still in that normal good between yeah. six and seven mm-hmm. range but still seeing um, some low results with the other kind mm-hmm. of components, the MPK and, and mm-hmm. all the macro and the micronutrients. So um, the only difference was this cover crop. And wow. I think that's the magic bullet, to be honest. Wow. Yeah. Hallelujah for cover crops. They really do. Yeah. They, if, if listeners aren't already using cover crops, I hear repeatedly that people want to, but then they're intimidated and it's just like, I don't know, which one do I choose? What do I, I don't know, how am I going to get rid of it? I I think it just is a little daunting, yeah. um, mm. but I'm here to say like, you know, from my experience and obviously Emma from yours too, that cover crops mm. are insanely powerful in what mm. we're doing. And they're really, you got to just do it one time and then it all makes sense. It's just, it's just that mm. thing of just like make the leap and do it. So I always say if you're looking for a, if it's hot summertime for you, throw in some buckwheat. That's like the easiest thing to sow, the easiest yep. thing to get to germinate, and the easiest thing, frankly, to terminate too, to get rid of. It's like so easy yeah. to get rid of buckwheat. Um, it's so fleshy and it it's is. so quick and you I can know. terminate it at any time. Anytime. You can grow it for a month. Right, exactly. Or six weeks or yeah. eight weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So so mm. if you're if you're really at a loss, um and it's it's hot summer do buckwheat. And then my favorite suggestion mm. for cooler weather, this isn't totally going to get you through the whole winter, but I, I assume, I don't know if you guys have it there. It's called Facelia. This is my new favorite. I've been using it yeah. for a couple seasons. So it is just so also so easy to sow, so easy to germinate. It germinates beautifully in just about any conditions, even without a lot of rain. And then it's incredibly easy to terminate as well. So that's my equivalent of yeah. buckwheat, but for and cooler can- weather. And you can cut from it as oh, well. It makes I a beautiful, pretty it. little blue cut flower. <laughs> it is a beautiful, <laughs> <into the bunches. laughs> beautiful cut, and it smells like grapes or grape juice, yeah. depending on how you want to um, consider it. Uh, so it's really wonderful. But I do often use Facelia just as like a a really short cycle cover crop where um, I just. I, it doesn't even reach maturity because our cold will kill it. But I, I still use it mm. to try to just get because mm. um, the the change in the soil from just having um, even two or three weeks of those baby mm-hmm. facilia or baby buckwheat, if you're in that stage, um, it's really noticeable. Like it keeps it keeps moisture Very. in the ground. It keeps the microbes churning. Like so, even if you're not gonna like keep stuff a cover crop going for a lot of weeks, even if you've just got a three-week window, you can make a huge change on mm. a space with just that that little bit of time. So, yeah. Yeah, and I would say buckwheat is like your entry-level 
cover mm-hmm. cover crop because yeah. it's so quick and you can do it in summer and you can do mm-hmm. it when you pull out a spring crop and yep. you're just flipping a bed you might say okay I'm just gonna not gonna plant another crop mm-hmm. in here I'm just gonna try buckwheat and I can yeah. you can sprinkle it on the top I mean mm-hmm. you do have to cover it because it's a big fat seed that the birds like to yeah. pick off <laughs> but um just just while you get your germination and yeah. remember to kind of have it have it um keeping moist so yeah. it germinates well but mm-hmm. it's a good one because it's it's um so quick to grow and then the, I remember the it's what the one I started with and the first time I, I did about three or four rows and I just could not believe the difference in the soil it's, it went from gray sand to black yeah beautiful soil yeah just in in a in a month or it, two it, I think it was six weeks I think it's shocking, yeah. isn't it? You're just like, wait, what is yeah. happening here? What alchemy? What what you know, wizardry is happening? Wizardry, it's just, yeah. So again, all that wizardry, but it is just the it's the wizardry is the microbes. Like they have food and they have a good plant partner, and then they help the plant. And it's just the it's the cycle of life. That's just all there is to it. Yeah. Um, you're just yeah. providing. Um, providing a place for all that life to happen versus barren soil that you just leave um leave blank has no capacity to do that so Mm. yeah Mm. yeah and I I learned how to kind of cover crop or about the different ones or the timings Mm. because it's it's quite you know a lot of the information is American for Mm -hmm. uh, for Australian growers and we don't have a lot of uh, some of those things that you're growing over there as cover crops so or, or the equivalent you know what's the equivalent here so I was reading um you know Daniel Mays from Frith Farm. He his book, the the No Till Organic Vegetable Farm. He he does a nice little section on cover crops and what ones he does with kind of pictures at different stages. And I found that really helpful when I was starting. Oh, good out because yeah, it really helped explain it. Um, what to use at what time of the year, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. yeah, and that is a great book for so many reasons. I highly recommend. Um, mm. that book for so many reasons. We'll put a link in the show notes for anybody who hasn't yet seen mm-hmm. that book. Um, definitely mm-hmm. worth having on your shelf and revisiting regularly, actually. <laughs> yeah. But I, I do think if you are starting a, a, a patch from scratch or a plot, a new plot of land, that's your one big chance to do a big full cover crop like I did, you know, just spread across the soil. Whereas now I've got my beds formed, you know, I'm going to be individually cropping those, um, cover cropping those beds, you know, and so either in summer with buckwheat or winter with a little mm. bit of peas or beans or, yeah, so you're you're more, it's, it's easier, isn't it, to get started and just really make a big transformation across mm-hmm. the full area that you're growing in there, mm-hmm. including the paths and including... Um, all of those areas, the outside of the of the beds. So, I would definitely encourage um, people to to do a big um, cover crop as a as a starting point for yeah. a new growing area. That's great advice, and it also means that you can get some bigger equipment in there if you need to. Say you're worried about yeah. like how am I going to get rid of this cover crop? You maybe yeah. in the future will never be able to use your your big riding mower to go over that space, but in the first go, mm-hmm. you you can, and you can mow down some serious biomass with a riding mower. Even if it doesn't initially yeah. chop it up, you can first roll over it with your big riding mower, and that like pushes it down, mm-hmm. and then you take another pass, and that starts to chop it up, and then you take another pass and that gets it really down but um it is it's that's great advice emma to just like go big the, that first time so and then it's, it's not as much of a risk if you're somebody who's in a tight space yeah. and worried about what you're going to do with it 
Yeah. It's same if you're worried about compaction in your soil. You know, that's your one time to get Mm -hmm. your heavy equipment in with your rippers or Mm -hmm. your big plows or something and just really kind of try and break that up because from then on, you know, for now, well, I'll just be broad forking. I won't even, Mm -hmm. the beds are too high to run any kind of equipment across it. And that's by design. So everything that I had to do was done in that first instance. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's great advice. I also think Mm. that um, something I wish more farmers did, all farmers, but um, since we're in the, you know, flower farmer world uh, and there's so many new people starting out, there's this tendency to focus to get to planting the flowers. But I think that if you can slow your roll, which is really hard to do, I understand I'm all about instant gratification too. (laughs) But if you can put cover crops in, you've just made beds or opened up that new ground, instead of immediately deciding that I'm going to put the flowers in, then just take your time and put a whole season of cover crop in. I know that's crazy. And most people will be like, I can't do that. I want to get to selling flowers. Uh, But you will you'll save yourself so much headache and you'll learn your land. It's not just about like the cover crop is going to do so much for your soil, of course, but you will also learn your landscape, your how does water move? How does light move? How does air move? Um, And those are all things that are super important to do before your, Mm. your farm's an amazing example, Emma. You already knew that landscape intimately before you decided where to put Mm. production spaces and how to run everything through the space. Yeah. If you don't take that time to learn the landscape, then you might put something, you know, plant something where it's really wet all the time and that it hates being wet. You didn't know that. (laughs) And now you just invested a whole season (laughs) into a place that hates that. So, yeah, yeah, cover crops can serve multiple purposes, not just improving the soil, but can also give you a an opportunity to like farm um mm. well it is really farming i'm using air quotes over here you guys <laughs> but it's true farming <laughs> and it gives you a chance mm-hmm. to farm without the high stakes of losing um valuable crops and disappointing co- mm. customers and so forth like that so and it's a it's a cheap indicator isn't it of how will things grow in that area mm-hmm. um instead of using your you know your beautiful um sort seeds from around the yeah, world that yeah. you've gathered of your flowers that you don't you know you've only got like 50 in a packet or whatever right. you know you you could just sprinkle down some yeah. winter peas and go yeah. let me just see how they grow and yeah. how healthy they are yeah yeah, yeah it's so. a great it's yeah it's good to see the response that they have um and if you ever have tricky questionable soil that's that's probably the best way to go just mm. to to get started with it so where, um, for Australian growers, do you have any great sources for cover crop seeds in, that you could say would ship around Australia or at least Tasmania? I have no idea over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We um, oh, So for buckwheat, I go to our local supermarket and buy the organic buckwheat really? seed because that's the only place we can get it. <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> I was like, oh, I went to my farm ag place and I went yeah. here and I was online and I was like, oh, no. And then I'm wondering, you know, pushing the trolley through the yeah. supermarket. I'm like, there's organic buckwheat. See, I'm like, I wonder what that will do. Perfect germination. Wow. Fantastic. <laughs> organic. So, yeah, that was just, I'm sure you can get it probably in health food shops and stuff. Right. But that's where I get it. I just get it on the shelf. At, oh, I'm so um, glad I asked that question. question. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think, you know, you, 
your farmers are very established in using your, like your winter cover crops, mm. so your oats and your, peen, mm. uh, your peas and your beans um, is what I used. And I just really bought that at a rural ag supply. Okay. Um, yeah. So I haven't, tr- I've tried um, flax as well, um, oh. which I grew last year. And that was a great seed because I could just scatter it on the soil, not have to cover it like I did with the buckwheat to stop the birds eating it. Such a fine seed. Mm-hmm. And it germinated beautifully. And then I got mm. this lovely crop that I could actually um, cut from, you know, the mm-hmm. beautiful flax, little green berries that you get after the flowers drop off. So I recommend flax as well as okay. a kind of, that was kind of like heading into autumn that yeah. grew. I think I, I sowed that at the end of summer and then it, it grew and I was cutting off it right at the end of the season, oh, which is cool. great. Yeah. Cause then you yeah. could do as a dried, you know, and could make wreaths or whatever yep. with it if you wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. All right. I'm going to have to try that here. Mm-hmm. I always sow anytime I've tried flax, which does, has not worked very well for me. Uh, I mm. sowed it earlier in the spring. So maybe my timing was really yeah. off. So okay. yeah, I tried some in spring and I didn't get it to germinate either this year okay. as well. So I've got this little, little bare patch that I'm like, hmm. And I've got some lovely quinoa that just took off um, and <laughs> in the wet and the cold. So I might just pop that in or yeah. Yeah, I tried I tried wheat too, some for some blood uh, lovely sort of long wheat, dried wheat for mm. dried bunches for later in the season for us, but that didn't take off as no. well. So Okay. Yeah. It's always an experiment. You just gotta try things. Yeah. That's <laughs> always an experiment. That's it. Oh, well, I feel like I could talk to you all day, which is um, uh, you know, might have to <laughs> might have to have a repeat performance around here. Uh but for now, I think we've probably got as much as our listeners can can consume. Um but thank you, Emma, for all of this. Is there any last thing that you wish I had asked you or some advice that you've received along your journey that you know would be really powerful for somebody else to hear any any parting words of wisdom essentially <laughs> oh, oh well I mean we we spoke a little bit before we started recording on just the benefits of having these kind of garden spaces mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um and mixed borders and planting yeah. sort of um thinking of your farm not just as that kind of that one spot that you grow flowers but surrounding it with a hedge where birds can nest and and um I mean it's not new it's not new to know to know that but um it definitely is something that I I I haven't noticed any problems with pests and I think that's because I have a an established garden space um and and garden areas adjacent to my growing areas that that are housing beneficials and and birds and all of the things that we need to yeah and a lovely big big pond or water source on our farm which has got frogs and yeah so and then really good fences to keep the possums and the rabbits out (laughs) well yeah you build it they'll come (laughs) yeah i cannot keep this one particular possum that i've got out of my roses at the moment that was a good example of aesthetics not being functional so i Mm. i had i started off with a you know steel star picket fence um and really fine netting i think similar to your deer netting um you know really really hard for possums to Mm -hmm. bear the weight because it's so fine but I was hitting the bottom of it and chewing it up with the mower because oh, um, no. it was so fine. And I was like, oh, I need a, a stronger. So I did a half, I redid it. I put put some timber posts in on the corners and then we stapled this um, harder mesh at the bottom, which is really lovely and it's functioning great with the mower. But um, it's just provided these beautiful timber posts for for this possum to, to like, climb up. Climb up oh, no. I'm like, 
dang. <laughs> so now, now I'm going to have to kind of offset it, like move it in like a, a 30 centimeters or something and brace it off the post or something. I've oh got to get gosh. smart with that. Oh, well, it's, it's proof that you never quite solve the problem, even if you think no. you have. So yeah. Con- constant problem solving, yeah. but it's fun. Yeah. I, I really enjoy it. it I love is. that part of it. Yeah. And I do have to just comment in the video that you took of your farm that I saw. The, I, the thing I noticed most was the bird song, you know, like I'll, I was also mm-hmm. totally enchanted by the landscape. Again, everybody listening, <laughs> please go look at Earth and Reef Farms, uh, Instagram and videos. Um, <clears throat> but there was just so much bird song in your video. And it just yeah. is it a testament to how your farm is an ecosystem and it's not just this place for crops to get churned and burned, so to speak. So I'm Yeah, definitely. I'm impressed. It's a... It's a little, um, it's our own little piece that we're tending and nurturing and hoping to leave better than what we found it. Yeah. And it's got to be so beautiful just to be in that space for yourself. So that's. Completely. That's why I never want to leave home. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, well, I, like I said, we could talk all day and I'll probably have to come pick your brain again. But thank you oh, love for this really inspiring conversation. I know our listeners are going to be so grateful too. So thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me on. It's been a pleasure. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, that wraps up another energetic episode of No Till Flowers. I'm so grateful you tuned in and hope you got several new ideas that can help you farm more in step with nature. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss the next one. Also, please take a second to rate and review the podcast wherever you're getting it. Reviews help grow this show and let others know that it's worth a listen. Many thanks to Matt Moran, the post-production manager of No-Till Flowers, for his meticulous editing so you don't have to listen to too many of my outbursts of excitement and laughter. Also, gratitude goes to Nikolai Fox for the original music used here on the show. Until next time, remember, it all stems from the soil.